<clears throat> Hello, good evening, folks. Can you hear and see me? Evening, Andrew. Can hear you fine. Good. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you for your response. Uh, Vanessa, I can see you're online. Vanessa, can you hear us? Good. Okay. Welcome to 6 p.m. Uh, cloud seminar. Um, now, Vanessa, I think this is your first one. You've joined us. I'm getting a fair bit of noise from one. one sorry. Of you. Second one, sorry, Vanessa. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, mute yourself when we're not speaking, please. And Mark, you were here in previous weeks. Sorry if my memories are straight. Uh, yeah, I missed last week, but I was here the week before that. Yeah, that's right. Yep, I remember now. Yep. Okay, welcome all of you. Okay, so this week we're looking at a thorny topic indeed. Um, and we can see you now, Mark. That's good. Thank you. Um, Ireland, past and future, the troubles. Um, why did they start and why did they pretty much end? Have they permanently ended? Uh, what role did America play, uh, both in those recent decades and historically? Where was America in the Irish story? And then why has Ireland, such a strongly Catholic, Catholic and therefore socially conservative country, overwhelmingly voted for gay marriage at the May 2015 referendum is this a sign that the Catholic Church has lost its authority? If so, why? And the implications. Interestingly, as, as I'll explain in the lecture tomorrow, not only after that referendum did um, Ireland support gay marriage, but they elected an openly gay prime minister, a man with a, uh, a background, one parent was from the subcontinent of India. So that's a bit of a departure um, from the idea of a monocultural, Catholic, uh, socially conservative country. So that'll be in the lecture tomorrow, which you will be able to see. And after dramas this week, you should be able to download it too. So you'll be able to see it in a downloaded version, not in necessarily in the watch the buffering version, which will make Paul happy and keep the bloody deacon technicians on their toes. I tell you, um, between you, you, you're going them from one side and I'm going from the other. They're earning their money. Now, okay, so you've probably had a chance to look at the readings. Can I start with... Um, uh, Vanessa and Mark, um, any thoughts, questions or comments you have at this stage? Um, I don't have any comments at this stage. No, I'll just, when you bring up specific issues, maybe I'll input, but I don't have any general comments, no. Okay. And Vanessa, any thoughts from you at this stage? No comments at the moment, right? You're being both sounding like um, very seasoned politicians there. Um, Okay, well, let's go to the first question. Why did the trouble start from the later 1960s? Mark, can you give me a, a sense of what, what the, core, the cause, the catalyst might have been? Um, I, don't, I don't know about the specific cause, but I know that what would have started their troubles would have been when um, the south of Ireland, you know, got their independence at around 1920. Um, but then England, you know, maintained control of Northern Ireland. So that's where the beginning of the conflict between the two um, starts to take off. I suppose that maybe it took a couple of decades for the movements involved to build to the point on each side where they could then be violent against each other. Yes, it's a very interesting point. Why from 1921 to about 1969, was there an apparent peace from it to outsiders um, and then it erupted? You know, how, why did the decades uh, appear to be quieter and then all of a sudden there was an explosion, Paul? Uh, the um, uh, World War One, World War Two, and the long boom after the war would be, would be my guess, that there would have been um, a, an uptick in economic activity and... Um, jobs for jobs for people who may not have had them prior to that, and then um, of course the glorious decades after the um, after World War Two um, sort of the rising tide lifted all boats is is a simplistic explanation for me. 
Yes, I think that it's partly true. Uh, a rising tide lifted all boats, but it, it obviously, even in the, the good economic times of Northern Ireland, uh, those four decades or so, it wouldn't have lifted Catholic boats as much as Protestant boats. Um, and the, if the trouble started in the late 60s, wasn't the end of the economic boom later? Wasn't that in the early 70s after the oil price shocks, Paul? Yeah, um, stagflation, oil price, yeah, that's true. Um, maybe the, um, the um, what did they call it? The, um, oh, the, um, oh, talking about this afternoon. Yeah. The, um, familiar, the, uh, familial ties, not necessarily familial ties, but in church and, um, more investment from, uh, the UK into Northern Ireland than Ireland, I think, with regards to Protestant and Catholic economies. Okay. Uh, Vanessa, um, we've, we've had a few things mentioned by Mark and Paul there. Is there anything you'd add to try and explain why the troubles erupted in the late 1960s in Northern Ireland? Any specific catalysts there might have been? Not sure if Vanessa can hear me. If you can, Vanessa, please uh, just let us know. Uh, well, I think what I'm trying to get towards is, oh, you can hear me, good. Okay. Um, you want, go ahead, Vanessa. Yep. I can't hear you, unfortunately, Vanessa. I can hear something, but I can't hear you clearly. Can you possibly put your mic up? Give that a try. All right, so you, you've put in the chat what I was thinking has been mentioned, mainly related to World War Two. Okay, so the sense of a post-war boom, as Paul mentioned, your mic's not working. Okay, okay. All right. Well, I think. Sorry, what, but what, also Andrew, the um, the um, the new generation of um, activists, that um, the younger generation um, who moved away from uh, trying to get a political solution to um, trying to get a militant solution. Um, which is why the troubles um, escalated in the 60s. Yes, that's part of the story. I guess um, the, the wider international climate of the 1960s, the 60s, the 1960s are seen as a decade of radicalism around the world. University students were protesting in America, Australia, Britain against the Vietnam War. Uh, Martin Luther King was leading uh, rallies for the African-American uh, people against the virtual apartheid that existed in America then where, uh, you know, fine women like Rosa Parks were expected to get up after a hard day's work because the colour of their skin was black and give their seat up to a, to a white person. Um, and if they refused to, were arrested. Um, discrimination against minorities, a sense of unwillingness to keep tolerating such practices. Also in France in 1968, there was a big student rebellion. In Ireland, the stirrings of a civil rights movement for the Catholic minority, because the, the deal with the partition um, that Mark mentioned in 1921 was that 26 of the 32 counties of those that the traditional Irish people saw as belonging to the entire island um, went to the south, six stayed in the north and became part of, part of the province of Ulster, part of, stayed in Great Britain. And the way the boundaries were drawn ensured that a Protestant majority existed in the north but a significant catholic minority and that was an uneasy piece i mean it's not the only time in modern history we've seen countries to outsiders appearing to be at peace that all of a sudden erupting the the, the clear parallel i think is is the yugoslavia um up until the 1990s from second world war uh tito's yugoslavia till the 1990s seemed to be a, a stable and you know relatively successful communist country, independent somewhat of Stalin's Soviet Union. And then it broke up into Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, and so on. The the religious differences between Serbians and Croatians and, and other people came into the fore and it went into a very bloody war. There's some similarities there. Um, so I think the Catholic minority asserting some rights and perhaps also governments taking some the first steps towards liberalising things to remove some discrimination. Um, often governments, if they take the first steps towards uh, 
liberalising, unleash forces that go beyond their control. And uh, some people say you're better to be a fully-fledged dictator because once you start making concessions, you won't be there much longer. So I'll explain a bit more about that in the lecture. Um, the historical perspective by um, one of the uh, readings, which is McKittrick and McVeigh, um, and also Tony Yurt, um tells us a bit, um, as does Neil, the Neil Hegarty reading extract. Um, so the second part of that question, just as quickly as the troubles started in the late 1960s, and, and in defiance of the way they raged for the next 30 years, with millions, uh, sorry, thousands, thousands of deaths, not millions, thousands of deaths, violent deaths, terrible incidents, um, <clears throat> then they came to an end in 1998. There was a negotiated settlement. The very people who had fought each other for 30 years or more came to an agreement. Um, what sort of things might have led the, the people you mentioned, Paul, the young radicals of the 60s uh, and early 70s, and, and the most prominent were Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, what might have led them by the late 1990s to negotiate and reach agreement with Paisley and his ilk? Paul? Uh, the maturation process to a, to, a, to a large degree. I think that... Um, as, as the young radicals, if you will, um, matured, they, um, realized that a, a, a more lasting, um, solution could only be achieved through the political process. And as I think it was McKittrick that, and, and, um, I can't remember the other guy's name, sorry. Um, it was saying that they, they went for, um, they went for votes instead of bullets. Yeah. So was it simply a case of young, angry young men? Uh, getting a bit older, maturing as one does in life, becomes slightly more conservative and saying, well, it's been fun all these wild years, but maybe it's time now to get a seat at the cabinet table and be, go a bit more respectable. That's what you suggest. He suggests that many of the, the elements of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 could have been agreed to earlier. Um, on the other hand, um, perhaps the role of Tony Blair as British Prime Minister, who'd been elected the previous year, 1997, his willingness to talk more with McGuinness and Adams than certainly Conservative Party predecessors like Margaret Thatcher did. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the uh, greater input from the American side um, and the higher quality input from America helped. Let's look at the American I think it, it also... Oh, sorry, Andrew. I was just going to say it also mentions in one of the readings that um, the the conservative the conservatives and Labor um, in, in Westminster were um, happy happy to sit with the status quo because um, they both had um, electoral they both had votes in in skin in the game I suppose you could say in in Northern Ireland that the the conservatives with the Ulster Unionist Party and the um, Labor Party with the um, um, ship, shipyards and shipwrights. And, and the trade unions in, in Northern Ireland. I think that that, that sort of perpetuated it uh, a little bit as well with, with um, uh, maybe, maybe Westminster not wanting to give concessions to to the nationalists. Yes. Now, so because Northern Ireland was in Britain, it was electing MPs to Westminster and those elected for the the unionist or loyalist side, those who supported the link with Britain, of course, went and took their seats in the House of Commons. But one of the interesting things was, particularly from the early 1980s, Sinn Féin people, including Gerry Adams, Gerry Adams was elected repeatedly as the member for West Belfast, but he refused to take his seat in the House of Commons because that would have been acknowledging the legitimacy of British occupation, as he saw it. So that was an effective protest. Um, but it's true that the, the Ulster Unionist Party in various forms did help provide, as a small party in the House of Commons, it helped prop up the Callaghan government, actually, a Labor government in the, uh, in the last year or so of its reign in the late 1970s, and it provided votes that could often be important. The same way, for example, that we know in the Senate in Australia, the government doesn't have a majority and has to get its legislation through the Senate. Uh, it has to get support from Jackie Lambie or uh, 
Centre Alliance, before that it was Nick Xenophon's party, the Greens, if they've got the numbers and so on. So there was a fair bit of that horse trading going on, certainly. Um, all right, well, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I started at um, uh, university in 1981, and that was the year of the hunger strikes, um, where Bobby Sands was the first of, I think, eight prisoners in Northern Ireland, IRA members, who, who argued that they were political prisoners, and therefore they need they they deserve more rights than other prisoners. And the British government under Thatcher refused to concede those, so they went on hunger strikes and they starved themselves to death. Now, literally, they lasted 79, 80 days. Uh, they refused food, and this this got a lot of world attention um, to the plight of the, the, what was going on. Why why is something so bad in this this small part of Britain, Northern Ireland, where young men are starving themselves to death? And Bobby Sands was actually a very charismatic figure. He looked like a drummer in a rock band. And um, uh, images of him were beamed around the world. So the, the campaign um, about who was right and who was wrong in the troubles escalated there. Um, can I ask you a question, Vanessa? Given that you're studying law, um, we're talking here about discrimination uh, against minorities. Um, one of the other controversies in the British Northern Ireland relationship has been uh, whether uh, heavy-handed policing and uh, criminal trials uh, have resulted in miscarriages of justice against some people accused and convicted of bombings. Have you ever heard anything of that nature, Vanessa? There's quite one way to see if Vanessa can hear and if she responds to that. Um, you might be interested to look up something called the Diplock Courts, D-I-P-L-O-C-K Courts, and internment without trial, um, and also some of the most notorious cases of proven miscarriages of justice in Britain have been referred to as the Guildford, the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, and the Maguire Seven, all referring to actual cases where groups of Irish young men were uh, arrested in Britain after incidents and charged and convicted. And I think in all three of those cases, later forensic evidence proved that they were not in fact guilty. Um, the, the Guildford Four, four yeah, uh, it has been made into a very powerful film called In the Name of the Father, uh, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. There's actually been a, a, quite a few good films. Um, thanks, Vanessa, for your response. It's fine. It's not something you necessarily would have come across yet, but it's an interesting example of how even in Britain, the, the country that invented trial by jury, you know, that, that prides itself on British justice, you know, the, the presumption of innocence, all those sorts of things, protections for the accused, that political expediency, uh, when you've got a big problem like uh, turbulence in Northern Ireland can often override those. So it's in many cases a disturbing chapter in British history. And, and many of those convictions weren't overturned until 25 years later. There was long campaigns by the relatives and so on. And eventually they were overturned. And um, one of the interesting things about uh, the Guildford Four, if I remember it right, I may have the exact details of this wrong, but um, in the film, The Name of the Father, uh, about that case, one of the wrongfully accused and convicted and jailed men married a daughter of Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of John F. Kennedy, and Robert F. Kennedy was the Attorney General in John F. Kennedy's presidency. The Kennedys were the first Catholic clan in America. JFK was the first Catholic president of the United States. And who's the second? There's only been two. It was the first, Kennedy. Second is Biden, correct. So, it took, you know, and the day that John F. Kennedy won the U.S. presidency in 1960 was a very important day for the Irish people because there was one of their descendants of the people who'd fled this poor country in the potato, potato famine and fled to Boston, trying to uh, survive. 
becomes the most powerful person in the world. And a, a good friend of mine who's Irish, um, his father was in London at that time working on a building site and the Irish weren't allowed into pubs. There was discrimination against them. So yeah, there was signs up saying no Irish, anyone else but no Irish. And so he went into the pub and said, what are you gonna do now? You know, we're running the world. The most powerful person in the, in the, in the world is an Irishman. So, you know, we're coming into your pub, stuff you. Great surge of confidence and pride, still there. Uh, and the Kennedy clan and the, uh, there, there are many more people of Irish descent in Ireland than live in Ireland today because they went to America and they multiplied as they did in Australia and they, and they prospered um, in a country that had more to offer in terms of food and opportunities. Um, that interest in Ireland was maintained and a sense of injustice for the Irish Catholics and their descendants who went to America. This brings us to this question of um, the America's, the United States role in helping settle the Northern Ireland disputes. Um, does that change what we framed in the first week of the idea of social Europe versus liberal America? Is the fact that the US may have played a helpful role in overcoming divisions between Catholic and Protestant in Northern Ireland to the credit of America? Does America deserve some praise for that? Vanessa? Did America do the right thing on, they do, exclamation mark, thank you, okay. Mark, you're pretty left wing, you told me, and you noticed I might be a little bit that way too. Um, just quietly, um, would you give some America some credit? Vanessa says they um, I don't actually legit know anything about what America's involvement is, so I don't even know what you're trying to give them credit for, to be honest. Um, yeah. But I will say maybe a factor that we haven't discussed so far was that maybe after 30 years of conflict, maybe just the general public on both sides were pressuring their leaders to come to some sort of agreement, because a lot of them would have, by that stage, known an adult life where it was nothing but these troubles. So maybe they didn't even consider might of who controls the, maybe like, you know, oh, who controls us, the UK or Ireland became less of a problem than the actual troubles themselves. So maybe they were pressuring the leaders to, we're over this, we don't want this anymore. <laughs> Just come to some agreement. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, and of course, you know, what a terrible place to live with so much insecurity and stress. I, my wife and I visited Belfast in 1993 and there was a bomb there. We stayed in the leafy eastern part of Belfast. Uh, most of the conflict spots are in the north and in the west, but between the north and the south. And I'll show you a map in the lecture tomorrow, you and the other students, which shows that very clearly. And the colours um, of the respective camps are green for Catholic and orange for Protestant. And the orange for the Protestant colour goes back to the fact that the first monarch to be involved in seriously invading, first British monarch to be involved in seriously invading Ireland and whose name is hated um, by Catholics was William of Orange, um, who was married to the Dutch Queen who took the British crown, the pair of them, uh, William and Mary, in 1688 in the so-called glorious revolution um the and orange is the dutch color as you may know if you watch soccer and the fact that carrots um were first made prolific in their modern form from the netherlands is why carrots are orange they could be another color orange is the color of protestantism so whatever your personal thoughts are on it aesthetically you know preferences you must be aware of this green is the catholic color you notice I'm wearing green here, but there's more to that story, which I'll uh, agree jump about. There's more to be said about that and shown later. Um, all right, so getting sick of it. Look, when we were there, we noticed, you know, people are just so stressed. You know, um, you never know where a bomb's going to go off. You never know where someone's going to get shot. Car bombs, you know, the randomness of it. It's impossible to live normal lives. And many people just want to get away. Yes, many people want to live normal lives. They'd rather have our problems. They'd rather have first world problems, you know. Like, you know, uh, bugger, I broke my mobile phone screen. You know, um, uh, I can't get the right brand of peppercorn, etc. Rather than whether, you know, you might die on the street that day. Okay, so America 
organic or no, yes, that's the first world problem. Well, it depends whether you're in Hampstead or Hull, um, Paul, as we saw last week, and um, uh, etc. Maybe there's different, maybe uh, parts of Belfast have more organic shops than others, but but there's a lot, a lot that's gone right in Northern Ireland since 1998. There has been a, a ceasefire and a peace, essentially. There's been a few occasional issues, but it's, it's a long time now, uh, 23 years, that that ceasefire and peace has held compared to what went before. Good progress. And I think America does deserve a lot of credit. And the fact that America felt some ancestral obligation because of its Irish, strong Irish um, diaspora, as they're sometimes called, many successive presidents can claim some credit. Um, it's actually, it's almost customary for American presidents and other senators to make it a pilgrimage to Ireland. And they can all trace some Irish hands, including Ronald Reagan, he did it, you know, Ronald Reagan. But you know who else, um, a prominent American figure, went to Ireland when he discovered that he had Irish ancestry was Muhammad Ali, the great boxing champion. Uh, African-American um, adopted Islam as his religion, um, as part of his militancy. Um, uh, took the name Muhammad Ali, his, his, his birth name was Cassius Clay, um, but he did have Irish ancestors too. Um, and he visited there and he was well received, um, probably by both Catholics and Protestants. There was one football player who came from Belfast, even at the height of the Troubles in the late 60s, early 70s, who was a Protestant, but he was cheered on by both Catholics and Protestants because he went at the age of 15 from Belfast to Manchester United and became a superstar. His name was George Best. And uh, he's Pelé, who's generally rated as the greatest soccer player of all time, although you might prefer the latest Ronaldo or Messi or one like that. Uh, Pelé said that um, George Best was the best soccer player he'd ever seen. So it's pretty high praise. A kid who, who honed his ball-kicking skills against the gritty brick walls of sectarian Belfast um, did so well. He might have done even better if he hadn't have, uh, have been, he said himself, if he had have been ugly rather than good looking and, and had not embraced a lifestyle of fast cars and champagne, he might have done even better on the soccer field. But that's, you know, that's a story that's common for celebrities from wherever they're from. Okay, so we've identified the trouble started suddenly, we've identified they ended. I'll talk more in the lecture about the bloody period in between. The trappings of fame go to people's heads. Yes, they do. And we've seen in Canberra uh, how politicians behave. And it's getting weirder and weirder, isn't it? I mean, you know, the things we're seeing um, and hearing about these politicians, um, it's just hard to believe. Um, but uh, we must get through it. Um, I'll talk more in the lecture about some of these details. And you may be still going through the readings. Um, the American role is interesting. Um, but then perhaps if we can move on to these other questions, which are not, as someone just pointed out to me on the discussion board, which I just saw, the, the latter questions are perhaps not readily answered in the readings, but they're things I encourage you to, you probably all have some obvious views on. Um, one is the fact that, all right, so we've talked about Northern Ireland, if we talk about the Republic of Ireland, the South, the, the part that stayed Catholic, sorry, that had its independence, that went into the European Union, that's happy in the EU, uh, it's had some periods of prosperity, the so-called Celtic Tiger period of the 1990s, where Dublin, um, partly with EU support and Irish governments, had some prosperity. We'll talk about that, but what I'm interested in is, and we've got a question, why did Ireland, such a strongly Catholic and therefore a socially conservative nation, overwhelmingly vote for gay marriage at its May 2015 referendum? Let's just unpick that. I say Ireland Catholic and therefore socially conservative. Is that a fair construction? I'm leaping from one to the other. I mean, does it follow that if you're Catholic, you're socially conservative? Can I, I ask you? They probably were. I don't know if they are anymore. Maybe they have a history of. I don't think I lived in Dublin a couple of years ago, and I don't consider them a socially conservative country at all. I would actually consider them the opposite. Now, yes, and Dublin's changed a huge amount. I mean, I, it's a long time since I've been to Dublin, actually, but Dublin changed massively in and since the 1990s economically with the Celtic Tiger period. It became much more multicultural. That's one thing, and that could be a factor in this, because when multiculturalism happens, old conservative monocultural societies can get uh, broken down and influenced by other things. Vanessa, can I ask you, your surname Hernandez, do you mind me asking, is that from a Catholic country? 
your surname, Spanish perhaps, or if you don't mind me asking. I'm still there, according to this, yeah. Um, from Spain, well spotted, great, yeah, okay. Um, and so therefore, Sp now some would say Spain is a Catholic and therefore a socially conservative country. Now, is that fair? I mean, what does it mean? What does, what does it mean to say a Catholic country like Spain is socially conservative? What issues come into that? I think it depends who you ask. Um, I think if you asked a conservative person, they would say it's about family values and tradition and, uh, you know, having members of society that are higher up than others and you follow the order because that's how society functions well. So family values, very good, and, and following people in authority. So you could say perhaps patriarchal, father's the head of the household that's traditional family values which doesn't that mean that the mother the wife is in a subordinate role a less equal role again that would depend who you ask i'm sure there's many conservatives who would um authentically state that they value the role of motherhood as very important and that it's an actual honor for the women to you know play that role okay so vanessa i'm gonna ask you and it's a pity we can't hear but if you wouldn't mind contributing answers to the chat. Um, there's, I'm sorry, these are rather complex questions, but not easy to give simple chat answers to, so uh, don't feel pressured. But you're a woman who's studying law from a Spanish background. Now, does that mean that you're rebelling against um, the idea that uh, you know, you're, you're taking a career path, you're getting away from traditional family values? I hope I haven't offended Vanessa with that question. Um, it gets walked out in disgust. Um, wait to see if she's able to reply in the chat. Um, family value. Well, yes. Okay. Oh, what do I mean? Well, exactly. Fair enough. Um, okay. What I'm, Mark has said that when, when we talk about social conservatism and Catholic countries like Spain and Ireland traditionally, perhaps Ireland's changed. Maybe Spain's changed too. Italy is another. Countries that are strongly Catholic, are they more socially conservative in terms of the view of the traditional families and the role of women, for example? Um, are less encouraging or supportive of the idea of women, mothers working full time? Is that possibly correct or is it incorrect? We'll wait for Vanessa because we need to allow her some time to uh, type a response there. Um, maybe that's not your experience, um, your sense of what it means to be Spanish today. Uh, yes, Paul. I think um, certainly, certainly from. Um, from my experience, and it's just, it's just, it's just got to do with the, 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 the discourse we've been fed in, in, in our, you know, in our society that, um, I have, I've always heard, heard of the, um, Catholic religion and certainly Ireland and Spain being fairly, um, socially conservative, whether that's, whether it's right or not, I, I, I can't, I can't, can't rightly say because I haven't been to it. I've been to Spain, but only briefly. Um, that um that, that that certainly with regards to Ireland it was always it was always couched whenever they spoke about it back in you know back in when I was young they still t talked about it as, as as being a very socially conservative country a very pious country um with you know and 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 I think from the readings we can get that there were strong links between um uh, you know religion and, and the government and and um that sort of uh, clientelism, I think, was the word that I was looking for before, um, and um, and I think that that um, that um, t together with a, a, a sort of a, a natural uh, liberalisation through the, the young people moving away and then coming back, um, also the uh, scandals around the church and child sexual abuse um, really profoundly damaged the church's reputation, rightly so. 
um, and and which is I think why they um, moved moved shifted. So, so it seemed to happen quite quite suddenly. But they, they you know I think Ireland was a, a bit of an outlier in 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 its in in the way it was once again what I've been told um, holding on to that religiosity that it, that it did for so long. Thank you. Um... Okay, now unfortunately, haven't heard from Vanessa. Um, hope everything's okay for you, Vanessa. Um, we'll keep discussing this. Um, the you anticipated there, Paul, how perhaps one of the reasons. Oh, here we go. Thank you, Vanessa. Incorrect, because you know many Spanish and Latin women who are working. More women are working now, so they can provide for their families and pay for other life expenses. My dad's side of the family, who are from Spain, are Christians, so maybe that's why we have different views. Indeed, thank you. Um, I think I think a lot of those traditional values are changing, precisely because of those sort of changes. Uh, and of course, um, that's that's common and widespread across countries. And it's happened in Ireland. Um, but Paul added the additional issue. Now, I, I know nothing about what's happened in Spain in relation to any scandals with the Catholic Church or institutional abuse. But we, we know that there's been issues like that in Australia, big issues. Um, the Royal Commission into abuse um, in institutions, the Catholic Church figured prominently in that. And that happened even earlier in Ireland. A lot of that was uncovered a decade or more ago. Um, very bad scandals. Um, the once very powerful Catholic Church, which few people questioned, um, was un unveiled to have many, many bad things. Authoritarian, predatory behaviour by men against boys and against other young people, girls on some occasions. Um, and I think the Catholic Church has lost a lot of authority on that. So that, that brings us to the question of homosexuality, because, of course, the reason that Ireland voting for gay marriage was seen as radical was because the Catholic Church teaches that homosexuality is wrong, that any sexual relations must be between men and women, heterosexuality only. Now, is that an incredibly outdated view? Well, I'm very biased in that, but um, yes, I definitely think it's an outdated view. Um, I think in terms of them voting so you know, I, I don't even think it was close, was it? It was like, you know, 60-something maybe or 70 even. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to Ireland, you know, it's not like they're in a vacuum. You know, their neighbours are the UK and Europe. They're part of the EU. It's not like they're going to be culturally changed over time because of that, especially the young people. You know, they, as um, Paul was saying, they travel to the... They go to these countries on holiday when they're kids and then when they're young adults... They talk to people from other countries, you know, it changes their um, doctrine. So, I mean, for me, the question isn't um, how, how did such a socially conservative country vote to approve, you know, um, gay marriage. It's more does the vote show you that they are no longer a conservative country is more the question I would state. And you would, you would answer yes, I think, to that. Correct. And I actually, when I lived there, they did the, um, the abortion vote as well, which passed right. extremely easily. Like, I got no perception of social conservatism when I lived there. But again, Dublin is not Ireland. No, Dublin is not Ireland the same way that Melbourne is not Australia. Um, it might be different in the, uh, uh, the rural areas of County Clare to the west and so on, but it's a radical change, yes, and to, to, to accept abortion, because abortion is one of the big issues for the Catholic Church. I mean, that, now, you've heard I mean, you know, Cardinal Pell, when he was in office in Australia, of course, has been very controversial, including spent a few years in jail after initially being convicted, but later his conviction was overturned of being personally involved in child sexual abuse, but also as Cardinal handling the issue in terms of the authority of the church. Um, and he did say on one occasion, why do people keep, he did say this, there's no dispute on this, he said, why do people keep talking about child sexual abuse? There's a much worse crime, and that's abortion. Um, and, I, and a lot of people found that highly unacceptable. The idea that for women wanting to control their fertility and plan their, whether or not they would have a child, the idea that that's a bigger crime than sexual abuse of a living child was very controversial. And there's also the continuing issue for the Catholic Church in all countries 
including Australia, is that the idea that a priest who hears a confession must never reveal that to anyone because that is a communication between the person confessing and God. The priest is merely the intermediary. So if someone goes into a confession and confesses to murder or rape, revealing that is considered a bigger crime than the murder or the rape. Now, I find that incredible in this day and age, and I find it unacceptable. Um, they're not lawyers for crying out loud. Who's not lawyers, Paul? The priests? Yeah, the priests. They're not. I mean, you know, this this idea that, um, you know, they're bound to, uh, we, you know, withhold information that could um, lead to the um, arrest and, and, and justice for someone who's been wronged, um, is is absurd. It's an absolute absurdity. I think it's you know like there's 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 reasons like I was saying there's for for lawyer um, client confidentiality. Um, I understand that, but I I, I, I you know I, I can't see how priests can can live with themselves with that knowledge and not not telling people and not making any difference to that person who's been wronged. It's bizarre. Yeah, I think many would agree with that. Of course, but then isn't that part of the problem? If you allow a religion to practice and, and that one of the beliefs of that religion is that anyone who reveals a secret from a confession will lose their soul before God, aren't you disrespecting that religion if you say, sorry, the law of Victoria or Ireland or whatever requires you to disclose that, mandatory reporting, if you call it that? Are we, are we infringing on religious freedom by doing that? Uh- I, I, I mean, it's, it's a thorny issue. I'm, I'm not, I'm not religious myself. I was not raised in a religious family. Um, I, I can't, I can't speak to the, um, strong passions that people have with regards to religiosity, although I know they have them and respect their right to have them. Um, I, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that if, 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 you know, to, to continue on down that line of, of thought, if, if if the priest if someone was going to tell the priest and they knew that the priest was going to tell someone else then they wouldn't tell them that thing that surely they'd still want to um, seek some sort of uh, absolution for their soul um, presumably um, but um, the the you know the 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 you know the state has a role in in um, finding out and prosecuting crimes. Um, the church does not have a role in 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 that or withholding information that could retard the, an investigation into that. I don't think, but that's just my personal opinion. Yep, Mark, I'm just typing a question to Vanessa while while you answer that, Mark. Um, I'm pretty much. I always like to joke with people that my motto is that I hate all religions equally, so don't get upset when I criticise one religion because I think they're all garbage. But um. I would think in counter to your point about what you were saying about um, infringing on people's religious freedoms, I guess the point is that if you are to claim that people can do anything they like and if their religion religion obtains it and they can break any law they like as long as their religion is the shield for it, I mean, who's to stop me from deciding I have a religion that says I can murder anyone that disrespects certain laws or whatever? You know, I could go do whatever I wanted. So it's just as a argument in general, it doesn't play out no matter what way you really look at it. Okay, yes, very rationally put, I guess. Um, uh, and, and it cuts different ways now. In Victoria, we do have a racial and religious vilification act, which means you can't insult a religion. It was a law that was brought in with the support of many groups, including the Jewish community, who are concerned about anti-Semitism, for example. Um, Now, in France, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, when we look at France, there's been the noted case of the Charlie Hebdo magazine, which published... Uh, what was seen to be insulting images of the Prophet Muhammad and is some some small number of Islamic extremists murdered the, some people in the Charlie Hebdo office as retaliation because they said they were insulting their God, their Prophet, and so on. And a lot of people 
including people I know and respect in Australia, joined this campaign saying just sweet Charlie in solidarity with the, with the magazine journalists and so on for freedom of speech. And yet in this state here, we don't have complete freedom of speech. We say you are, you are free to speak, but not if you insult the religion or race of another citizen. And I actually support the racial vilification. So I would not say je suis Charlie, which means I am Charlie in French. I would not say that because I think it's wrong for a magazine to publish things that insult people's religion. So it's a tough one, isn't it? Where would you go on that one, Mark? Are you, would you say je suis Charlie or would you say je ne suis pas well, Charlie? I mean, I, ne- I never put up the pictures or posts of whatever thing is the flavour of the day. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't even say anything, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I understand your point. Um, I would say, I mean, it's fair call for you to say, you know, maybe they shouldn't publish the stuff, but you're, are you saying it should be illegal for them to publish the stuff or more that they should show maturity and just not do it? Because why do you want to piss people off? You know, like I understand the point you would say if you were to say, oh, come on, guys, you didn't need to publish it. You're just causing shit. Don't do it. Um, but I wouldn't legislate it. No, I believe people should be able to say mm-hmm. and do what they want. You know, words can be harmful, but, you know, putting a picture on a magazine isn't slaughtering people. So, like, you know, have some perspective and don't do it if it's going to piss people off. Um, but, you know, to legislate it, I don't think that's correct. In my opinion, not the correct approach. You're inclined towards the a classical smaller liberal view of free speech you're very reluctant to ever concede i would rather i would rather have people call me a faggot to my face and yell at me than some person legislate that they're not allowed to say such a thing and then those people kill me instead yes and you'd you'd be prepared to argue against people using that hurtful speech uh, I, I think they should be able to make that harmful speech. I'm an adult. I can handle it. Yeah, there's some negative consequences of it, but I think there's greater negative consequences out of telling people what they can and can't do and what they can and can't say, because all you're going to get as a result of that is things authoritarian. You're just going to get authoritarian movements that come from that if you want to control everything people do. And I'd rather live in a free a society where I have to put up with some of the shit than live in an authoritarian state. Okay, very well put. A very clear position. Um, and we'll see the recurrence of that tension between free speech, multiculturalism, religious freedom uh, in various European countries um, in coming weeks, how it plays out and the approach some countries take. France is interesting um, thank you, Vanessa. Now, okay, well, let's go back to Vanessa's point here. If someone's going to confess to a priest, I think that if it is an indictable offence that they are confessing to the priest, that information should not be kept disclosed. There is a huge difference between stealing a lolly from a store or killing someone. Very good. My dad has criticised, your dad, Vanessa, has criticised the church on many occasions. Thank you, Vanessa. Excellent. That's exactly what we're getting into here. I mean, your dad's a Christian, who identifies as a Christian. But that doesn't mean he, he, he agrees with everything the church does. And I think that's the situation that the, church, the Catholic Church is in in most countries now, and all churches are. Um, with, you know, perhaps Islam is a, is a growing religion compared to Christianity. The Church of England is certainly not a growing religion, I can tell you. Um, but, you know, um, in fact, some people think that many of the, um, they're not called priests in the church, I mean, they're called ministers. Priest is a very Catholic term, but some people think most of the ministers of the Church of England don't even believe in God. They seem to have, you know, lost all sense of religion. They certainly don't believe in the you know, literal idea of the resurrection and so on. Um, but there's all stripes of Christianity and other religions. So thank you, Vanessa, for clarifying that point. That's exactly what we're talking about with social change, the erosion perhaps of the authority of churches, including in um, countries where there was one strong religion, which happened to be Catholicism in uh, Ireland, as it was in Italy and Spain, um, Southern Europe. France is, is is Catholic, but France, since the French Revolution, has had a clear demarcation between church and state, and it embraces a, a type of secularism called laïcité, which it doesn't just um, uh, it doesn't just discriminate against Muslims, if you can argue that it does. You're not allowed to wear a crucifix in state schools in France because that's a religious symbol. And that's a long-standing thing. It's 
part of the separation of church and state. So, you know, I wear a gold chain around my neck. Um, not, it doesn't have bristles actually, because I'm not particularly religious. I do, when I fill in the census, I put Church of England still. It's just out of a habit. I mean, I, I still, still feel a slight attachment because I went there to Sunday school when I was a kid, and even sang in the choir for uh, a while. Um, but it's not a very accurate answer, really. And I'm agnostic, but I'm, I'm agnostic, more inclined to atheist than believing. But um, I think atheism sounds really almost as dogmatic as being a fundamentalist religious because cause it means you know, you know, there's nothing. Yes. There's nothing I don't know. Sometimes, like, when you say things or some of your written notes, it's like you're in my head because that's exactly how I would summarise myself as well. I don't like to – I'm a – atheist-leaning agnostic, because to be atheist means you claim that you know there's nothing, whereas I don't know shit, so I can't actually claim to know anything. Um, so, yeah, I'm the same boat. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, religious debates, I mean, a, a, a school teacher, um, nihilism, yes, nihilism could be an extinction of atheism. I don't like the idea of nihilism believing in nothing. I believe in certain things. Um uh, someone, a, ra a rationalist science teacher at the school I was in, went to, was ha always had debates about religion with some of his colleagues. And um, he said, look, I'll tell you what, when I die, come to my funeral. And if there's an afterlife, I'll make your beers fill up the glass, right? So you drink out of it and I'll refill, okay? I'll, I'll send you a signal from from the grave. And it didn't happen. But, you know, is that proof? I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe there's an afterlife or a soul, but you can't, you just can't make the beers go. We're not going to know. If we do know, we're I've, not um, like like I said, I've um I've I've not been raised in a religious family, but um through my own research, I've I've found that the best the best um the best argument I can find for believing in God is Occam's Razor. Yeah, is that you um you know if if you believe in God and you die and it turns out not to be true, you've lost nothing. But if you don't believe in God and you die and it is true, you've lost everything and, 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 and it's unquantifiable. You know, it doesn't make me believe, but, um, I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty fine argument. My favorite religion is Buddhism because it's based more on just trying to enjoy your life rather than dictating yourself to someone. So I'm not a Buddhist, but if I was going to say I at least understand the point of a religion for the sake of having one, that's one I can relate to. Interesting, yes. Um, and in relation to what Paul was saying, there's a lot of deathbed conversions these days, or close to deathbed conversion, or late in life, people who've been atheists, perhaps hedging their bets, you know, saying, hang on, I think I might might be time to be baptised or something like that. One of the most notable examples I can think of is in Australia is Bill Hayden, who uh, was leader of the Labor Party for 19... 77 to 1983, he wasn't Prime Minister, but he was a significant he was Foreign Affairs Minister. He was an openly atheist for nearly all his adult life. He'd been raised a Catholic, but he rejected it intellectually, became a rationalist and atheist, and he espoused that consistently for 50 years. But he's gone back to the old faith in his old age, and um, he's been received back into the Catholic Church. He's, what they say, drink the wine and chew the wafer. Um, uh, and uh, why? Well, I suppose people do think about these things more when you're when you're approaching mortality. Um, and maybe and I'm not suggesting he's being cynical. But, you know, maybe he's thinking, well, maybe there is something. You know, and we must respect people's different beliefs, political, religious, and other, and people's different sexualities, um, orientations, and so on. That's a big issue that will continue to play out. But Ireland, as as Mark has seen firsthand, living in Dublin not so long ago has changed a lot from the idea of this sleepy, socially conservative, monocultural, Catholic-dominated country, um, as it was seen. And uh, we'll talk more about that in the lecture tomorrow. Now, I mentioned um, Pascal's wager, not Ockham's Razor. Thank you. All right, okay, you've clarified it. Thank you, Paul. Now, I mentioned, and in, in the lecture tomorrow, I'm going to show some illustrations. I might just quickly foreshadow them in the last few minutes we've got. I'll share my screen. Hang on. Um, actually, these illustrations are on Cloud Deacon, um, and but I'll explain the context. Now, this is um, uh, the two little boys, young men, in the 70s, the early 70s. It's actually from the Yurt book, that photograph. 
in a Catholic area of Belfast and you can see the graffiti behind them, join your local unit IRA. That's the kind of environment they grew up in. Um, this is the map of Belfast showing the extreme segregation. Orange in the east, more green in the west, and where my cursor is moving, uh, hang on, can you see this? If I share the screen properly yet? Maybe not. Um, can't, can't see it. Sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. Just bear with me, I, I will share the screen properly now. Um, uh, sincere apologies for that. I've got to make sure I don't close accidentally. Um, Where's the panel gone? That's what I'm having trouble with. Um, find me in Google. I want to get there. So where am I? Where is? Here I am. Okay, right. Um, get panel. Can't see where to share the screen. Uh, it's not Zoom. That's why. Sorry. It's Blackboard Collaborate. Sorry. It's a different process. Get that. Sorry, you will see these illustrations tomorrow. I, I apologize for that tantalizing like that. But essentially, you'll see clearly because the recording tomorrow will record um, the, the computer screen, which is the Word document, but I will, I will switch to a PDF there. That will work. Um, I just made an error there because it's Blackboard Collaborate, not the same. But essentially, I was going to show images of children growing up in, in an environment that where Hatreds are handed down from one generation to another in Belfast, in Derry, another major city in Northern Ireland. Derry, it's called by the Catholics, Protest, uh, London Derry by the Protestants. Um, orange and green, the colours, orange for Protestantism, green for Catholicism, green for traditional Ireland. Um, and we'll show that map of Belfast, which you'll see tomorrow. The extent of the segregation where people live is quite stark. But on a more positive note, uh, yes, Mark. Is the flag of the Republic of Ireland meant to represent the union of those religions, or is that just a coincidence? No, you're spot on. In fact, it was, it was the very thing I was coming towards. Um, the the Ireland, the Irish flag, the tricolour, has green at one end and orange on the other, and a white in the middle. It's three boxes or stripes, tricolour, green, white, and orange. And that is an express symbol from the person who designed it, um, to have the Catholics and Protestants of Ireland, whether in the South or the North, live together in peace. And the white symbolises the peace between them, an aspiration for peace. So the Irish national flag is quite an inclusive flag, actually. It's not saying we're the Catholic country and wreck off Protestants. It's an attempt to bring them together. Now, the Protestants have been in Ireland for hundreds of years now, but not as long as the Catholics. The Protestants were seen as the planters who came I mentioned William of Orange, the king before him, Oliver Cromwell, the Republican uh, dictator or protector in the 17th century, hated in Ireland for the massacres of Catholics. He was a puritanical Protestant. It's a, it's a matter of coming to terms with that history, the reckonings of history. How do you, how do you, how do you overcome this, this history? Just to show you, I alluded before, I'm wearing a green jumper, but to show that I'm not biased and I support the aspirations of the tricolour, Underneath the green jumper, as I unzip it, I have an orange top. I'm not biased. I want peace, although we'll all disagree on how to achieve it. Um, touche, thank you. Um, oh, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. I'm glad you appreciate it. Uh, um, always like to try and bring a little bit of dramatic flair to, um, and, you know, sometimes old technology is better. Like you just, you know, open your jacket rather than, you know, um, triple click on the latest app. Um, so I'll do the same in the class tomorrow, but you saw it first. And um, any questions or comments before we finish up? Um, I don't have any questions, but I thought it would be interesting if you look at like maybe census data of Ireland for maybe the last 20 years. I'm sure lots of demographics have changed, including how many consider themselves non-religious. I, I would put it that Ireland in particular is one country where that question is very much skewed incorrectly and that a lot of people answer that question 
for a similar reason that you stated you do, as well as just because they don't want to, you know, annoy their mum or dad and they just want to, oh, just put that on the form because, you know, keep the peace. You know, I reckon Ireland's probably one of those countries that is the most skewed in that way. I think you're probably right. And that's why um, people doing surveys you know, who are trying to determine extent of religious adherence in countries, they look at things as well as the religion people say they are in a sense, they look at things like church attendance. So they do surveys of how many people actually go to church every Sunday. And that, that's a big thing in Catholic community. You know, why aren't you going to mass? When did you stop going to mass? And, the, and anytime I did go to mass, uh, I'm, I wasn't baptized a Catholic, I was Anglican. Well, I wasn't actually baptized either. I had to get baptized at the age of 25 in order to marry my wife who was Italian and therefore Catholic in a Christian church. So I had to do Bible study at the age of 25 and, and I'd line up with a, a baby who had been dipped in the baptismal font and then he picked up a shell and poured it over me as a 25 year old, six foot man, uh, which the congregation thought was quite amusing actually. Um, so I chose the Anglican church because I was more familiar and that was acceptable to marry a Catholic. Um, but I've gone to mass quite often with my wife and our daughters. I said they could be Catholic as long as they don't bury for Carlton, so they bury for Richmond, because uh, um, that, you know, that, that was the bigger issue for me. And so I've gone to mass with them, including they've had their first communions and there and, and so on. And I must say they were very wonderful things uh, in their in their life to to be special moments. You know, it's very positive things in that tradition. Um, but church, one of the things when you do go to mass, it's usually some grumpy old if it's still an Irish um, descended Catholic, grumpy old priest saying, why don't you come more often? Where were you last Sunday? And, you know, those of you coming to your children's community, why don't you come to Mass every week? And we're thinking, well, you know, you're not exactly putting a great head for it. I mean, you know, just, just complaining. You know, I mean, you've got you to you gotta sell your religion. You've got you gotta, you gotta, you know, you to make people believe and smile. You know? That's the declining um, authority of the church and uh, surveys of church attendance. We'll talk more about that. Um, particularly when we talk about Italy in a few weeks. We unfortunately don't cover Spain specifically in this unit, Vanessa, but if you're interested in doing something on Spain, you're very welcome to explore a topic on that and to uh, correspond with me in these seminars or by email, and we can discuss that. Um, I missed um, the deadline yesterday for written notes. If I submit something tonight, is that box still open to submit stuff? It should be, I think. Yeah, it will be, but it'll say late. Yeah. All right. Cool. We won't. You know, we won't um, I'll pop something in. <laughs> we won't do what Oliver Cromwell and William of Orange into the Catholics back <laughs> in the seventeenth um, century. Um, uh, no, we, you know, we'll, we'll we'll take a merciful view. All right. Thank. Appreciate it. I'll get something in tonight. Thanks. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and have it on time next week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a lovely evening. And. Um, uh, look after yourselves. Thank you. Okay, see you next week. Uh, Kristen was an apology today. She's unwell, um, but she'll be back next week, and she's always uh, a keen contributor in this session too. Okay, ciao.